Please rise. Court is now in session. All rise. All rise. Is It Legal 2, a regular look at the legal system, and you, a special production of the Missouri Bar. I'm Bob Pretty. And I'm Farrah Fight. We're going to talk about family law today. And Farrah, it seems to me that anybody who practices family law has to know an awful lot of stuff. And I hope I don't make lawyers with more specific practices upset if I say that. But family law has to cover a huge number of issues. And a lot of family law is about fortunate as well as unfortunate family relationships. It can range from divorce, annulment, property settlements, alimony, child custody and visitation, and more. We're going to talk about all these issues and more with Diane Howard, who practices family law, personnel and employment law, and education law with the Limbaugh Law Firm in Cape Girardeau. She was chairman of the Missouri Bar's family law section a few years ago and also started our family law conference that's now been going strong for 20 plus years. So welcome to our program, Diane. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start our discussion with the definition of the word family (laughs) because we seem to have so many different kinds of families today. The idea of family law is really a broad area of the law. Many people who practice family law practice in different areas, so so it's hard to say what a family lawyer is. Some people do divorce law, who are family lawyers. Other people, a very common area of the law is what we call paternity cases, which that can be a whole presentation itself and is confusing to the public. And uh, paternity cases, they'll, most people say, well, does that mean paternity testing? Which it doesn't mean paternity t- t- testing, but those are cases involving child custody and child support when parties aren't married. Uh, those are like divorce cases, except we're not dealing with property, we're only dealing with the child, but when parties aren't married. Also, juvenile cases fall under family law. Uh, adoption cases fall under family law. And also, sometimes with many par- many practitioners, they deal with guardianships, cases like those they consider under family law because those deal with issues involving families. So family law can be a very broad term for lots of areas of practice. Would you say that family law and all of its different aspects is probably the most likely touch point that a citizen would ever have with the courts or the court system? Domestic practice, family law or or domestic practice or criminal law. The bulk of cases, legal cases in our court system are either domestic cases, as we call them domestic cases, or our criminal cases. Those are the most common. You talked about divorce and some things like that a minute ago, but do you do you see before people get to the point of divorce, they have to get married? And do, are you are you seeing very much pre-marriage questions raised these days? No, no. Very few people are involved in anti-nuptial or anti, not being A-N-T-I, not A-N-T-I as against, <laughs> but anti. A-N-T-E, meaning pre. Very few people see an attorney before they get married and and do any kind of prenuptial planning. We did do an episode earlier this year on love and marriage, and both of those lawyers recommended highly that you have a prenup. Yes. They said most people don't take the time to do it, but it can uh, prevent a lot of hardship down the road. 
Well, one of the reasons that, that I would recommend, and most people think that you have to have a lot of money or something like that, but one of my recommendations to people in talking with an attorney before they're married is that it encourages couples to talk about issues that they often don't talk about before they're married. And I find when I talk with clients about issues associated with getting married, the, the parties are, are very surprised at the responses that they get from each other and say, well, we haven't really thought about that or we haven't really talked about that. And um, I suggest to them that now is a very good time to be talking about these extremely important issues about how their plan to handle their finances or, uh, you know, are you going to maintain two bank accounts or one bank account or how are you going to handle your household finances uh, if they have children for previous marriages, or what are they going to do about finances involving them, and you know, they, they look at each other with blank stares, and you know, it's not my life, but I just suggest to them that these are maybe discussions that need to be had now, uh, because those are some of the kinds of issues that arise and they find troublesome when they've already walked down the aisle and find that they're not on the same page, not walking down the same path. What, 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 what kind of different questions would you, would you get or would you recommend people ask if, if they're up in years and, and their spouses have died, for example, and here are some people who are 60 or 70 or 80 years old who decide they want to get married? Well, they need to talk to each other about, just as I've suggested, finances apart, finances together, um, estate planning issues. Those are couples that we talk about estate planning issues what they want to do as far as an estate plan, if they, especially if they have children from their previous relationships or previous marriages, what their intentions are with those types of things. Those are very important to discuss. If they're going to have a home together, what their plans are with that home together, what their plans are. One of them is going to predecease the other. We all die. Is the other spouse going to remain in that home or you know, is the home going to go to the children? You know, just things like that that we throw out uh, to be discussed. Are they going to live in dad's home? Are they going to live in uh, mom's home? Do the children know that? Are they going to start their own home together? And many times those things aren't, aren't really discussed when everyone's all giddy with new love. <laughs> it's easy to get swept away, isn't yes, it? Yes, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with giddiness of new love, but there's the practical aspects of living once you sit down and start your household together. So a lawyer can help in throwing out some of these very practical ideas. Is marriage more complicated for older people than younger people? Then? Well, marriage can be complicated when you have existing families. It can make it more complicated when you have existing families and just talk about how you plan to handle your life and your existing families. It can make it more complicated. And it, it's good to plan. We just talk to people. Planning is not a bad thing. <laughs> if you have failed to plan, though, and you've been in a relationship, a marriage, and things have gone south, and it's not working out. Do you find folks or couples that come to you asking you 
to help solve their marital problems or their marital relationship? Are you a, are you a counselor no. in more than one way? No, I'm not a counselor. <laughs> I've, if I've said it once, I've said it probably 10,000 times that I took three hours of gen psych in 1974. <laughs> and even though I got an A, my three hours of gen psych does not qualify me <laughs> to give any type of counseling or advice. I'm an attorney. I took three years of legal, formal legal training, which resulted in me getting a doctorate in law. So, so that's what I do for a living. I have a doctorate in law and three hours of gin psych. <laughs> so I am not a counselor, and when my clients are distraught, which I, I would not have a couple coming to me, I would have a client coming to me. And uh, if I have a client who needs to talk to someone, um, there are lots of people to whom they can speak, friends and families and counselors and you know pastors and best friends and the person in the next carol at work or whoever, but not me. Um, they are hiring me as a professional to do what I am trained to do, and that is give them legal advice. For couples that don't get married, but just establish long-term relationships and mm -hmm. buy property together and have a family together. What complications are there for them? Well, lots of them. Uh, there are two types of legal actions available to those parties when things go awry, and it is more complicated when there is not a marriage involved. There are legal actions in association with their property, both personal property and real property. So if parties purchase property together, jointly hold property, then they may have to go through a civil action for the splitting up of that property. Just like if you have siblings that own property together and they no longer can hold that property together in a civil fashion, there's, there are causes of action to partition their ownership so that one of them owns half and the other owns half no longer jointly own it together. Well, that's what would have to be done by domestic partners who own property together and the relationship has gone awry. So that's what they would have to do as far as their property that they own together, whether it's personal property, you know, bank accounts or whatever, or real property. And then if, in addition to that, if there's a child or children born of that relationship, then that's the paternity case, which affectionately referred to as a paternity case. Actually, in Missouri, it's a parentage action, but nobody's ever heard of that word, so <laughs> we call it a paternity <laughs> case. And a case under the Uniform Parentage Act here in Missouri will make a determination regarding what should be done as far as custody and support of that child. Yeah. Who is responsible for financially supporting the children? Both parents. The system that we have here in Missouri, whether it's a divorce case or a parentage case, involves calculation of support. We have a Rule 8801, the Supreme Court rule, and under Rule 8801 we have most many people have heard of Form 14, which is our form that we use, and that calculates the relative support obligation of both of the parties. So we mimic the responsibilities of the parties if it was an intact household. That the idea is if it's an intact household, 
both of the parties would be contributing to the support of the child or children. So if it's not an intact household, that's the same thing. Both of the parents are contributing to the support of the child or children. When it comes to custody, how is that decided? And does Missouri start off with the presumption that parents should get equal time, or is it different? Is, is one parent favored over the other, or does it matter about what's best for the child? Well, when it comes to custody, just like any other issue in any case, whether it's a family law case or any case, um, every issue in every case is decided one of two ways. Either the parties between themselves or with the help of their attorneys or alternative dispute resolution or whatever, either the parties reach a resolution as to every issue in every case, no matter uh, what kind of case it is, or if they can't reach a resolution regarding that issue, then a judge decides. So that's how every single issue is decided in every single case. That's sometimes a hard concept for parties to understand. They think somehow or another the lawyers are going to decide it or somebody else is going to decide it. But, but parties need to realize every issue in every kind of case, no matter what kind of case, is decided one of two ways. Either they are going to figure it out and reach a resolution, or if they can, then that's what the judges get paid to do. The judge is going to decide it. So as to custody, which is one of those kinds of issues, Custody by law in Missouri is decided based on the best interests of the child. We have a statute and it has eight factors and lawyers will go over those eight factors and I won't bore you with them today. The judges are required to follow those eight factors. But physical custody, I'm talking about physical custody, which is what most people think of as custody is the physical custody, not legal custody. Legal custody is the raising, the responsibility to raise a child. Physical custody, people think there's a presumption of 50-50. There's a presumption of, of joint custody. And our statute still says that joint is not necessarily equal. There's a lot of thought that joint is equal, but joint is not necessarily equal. But there's a strong presumption that each of the parents is going to have substantial periods of custody. And the law reflects societal norms. I mean, that's really what the law is. So as the societal norms are moving more and more and more towards the concept that there isn't any reason why one parent should be preferred over another parent, and I sure have seen a lot of changes in the long period of time I've practiced we're moving more and more towards the fact that there isn't any reason why a child should spend more time with one parent than with another. On the other side of that is, is parental custody and termination of parental custody. Do you, do you get into a divorce proceeding very often where neither parent wants the children? Custody can't be terminated in a divorce. Okay. And there's a lot of, uh, that's thought that that can occur. That's a, that's a very popular ur urban rumor. But the only termination of parental rights that can occur in Missouri is in association either with a juvenile action or an adoption action. Those are the only two ways. Uh, we have clients all the time that indicate to me, Bob, that I want his parental rights terminated. I, I want to file for a divorce and I want his parental rights terminated or I want him to give up his parental rights. And I explained to that client, well, if you're getting ready to marry someone else and that person is going to adopt that child, then in association with an adoption, he can terminate his parental rights. 
but the courts, you can forgive me for using a legal term, uh, the old-fashioned legal term is bastardize, <laughs> and that is to leave a child without a parent. The courts are not going to do that in association with the divorce, end up that the child has no mother or has no father and just only has one parent through a divorce action. That's not going to happen. And that's a very good question because that's a very common misconception that that can be done in a divorce and it cannot. Custody can be very limited to either supervised or restricted, but the statutes are even pretty limited as to the ability to do that. A lot of people want that, <laughs> but it really can only be done if a parent seeing a child is going to be harmful to them, not because one of the parents or another doesn't really like the other parent anymore. If one of the reasons for the divorce is that a child has been abused by one of the parents, how do you handle that? Well, that would typically be resolved if the child's been abused, there's a requirement under the law that a guardian ad litem be appointed, which is a, an attorney who is representing the interest of the child. And if there's been abuse, the expectation would be that there'd be very limited or probably supervised visitation in order to protect the child from that abuse is how that would be handled. It would be the typical outcome that you would expect for a situation like that. You mentioned the Form 14, I yes. think is what you described. Child support worksheet. Yes, that worksheet that's used. How does support or maintenance work? And is support and maintenance the same thing, no. or are they different things? And if so, please explain. <laughs> well, maintenance is a form of support, but that's spousal support. So we have child support and spousal support, and there is no form for spousal support. Spousal support is completely discretionary. Some states do have formulas for spousal support, but we do not in Missouri. It's completely discretionary. But we do have a formula, understanding that at the end, and the Form 14 comes up with a presumption. The court's not bound by it. It comes up with a presumed amount of support, but the court can vary from that. So it's not you know, written in stone. That's used for child support only. And can those be modified if situations change? Uh, both child support, uh, spousal support can be modifiable or non-modifiable and the parties can agree or the court can hold whether spousal support is modifiable or non-modifiable. Child support is always modifiable. It can never be held to be non-modifiable. Parties can't even agree that it's non-modifiable. Sometimes parties want to do that and uh, that can't be done by statute. The court always has control over child support until the child or children emancipate as to whether it should be changed. By Missouri statute, unless the new amount is 20% different, it doesn't change, and that's to keep people from going back in every time it moves up or down a few dollars, but it is always modifiable. And at what age is a child emancipated? Well, we have, we, heaven forbid we make this too simple. Heaven forbid we make anything too simple under the law <laughs> that people like me wouldn't have a job. Children sometimes modify, sometimes uh, they may emancipate at 18, sometimes 19, sometimes 21. But the typical rule is that when a child graduates from high school, a child's going to be emancipated. So when a child graduates from high school, that's the easy rule of thumb. They're going to be emancipated unless they go on to college. 
and Missouri law, they have to be enrolled in college by October 1. Sounds like a crazy date, but that's what the statute says. By October 1, following their high school graduation, they have to be enrolled in college. If they've graduated from high school and they've not enrolled in college by October 1, then they're going to be emancipated. And, they, and then they have to remain enrolled in college continuously attending. They cannot sit out for a semester. And they have to be taking at least 12 hours, and they have to be passing, what burden, six of those 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> so they have to pass at least six hours a semester through to age 21. So very detailed. Yes, that's right. And there's even more detail. That, they have to provide upon request to the party who's paying support their schedule and their grade reports so that their the party who's paying support can confirm that they're enrolled in those 12 hours, they're passing those six hours, and they are attending continuously. So there's a very detailed statute. It's through high school, and I said college, and I'm sorry I misspoke. It's post-secondary education, which would include vocational Like technical. trade school? or yes, okay. vocational technical or trade school. This sounds like a good time to explore legalese, a translation of the legal topics we've been talking about with retired Supreme Court Judge Mike Wolf. Legalese. My first year of law school was consumed by the study of the usual suspects, contracts, property, torts, legal process, and so forth. Interesting, but at the time a bit far removed from what my 22-year-old self would consider important or pertinent to the lives of regular people. I was ready to quit law school and go on to something else, like the job I had as a newspaper reporter for the Minneapolis Star. But then in the fall of my second year, I discovered law that was important, that could actually be used and studied for its effect on the lives of real people. It was called, curiously, family law. Curious, because so much of it did not involve families as such, but rather the interests of the state in protecting the lives of children and others whom society has an interest in protecting, including, of course, those who are dissolving their families through divorce, what we now call more politely dissolution. With rare exceptions, the state claims a monopoly on the legal means for creating marriage bonds and for dissolving them, though, of course, the creation of marital bonds often is done through religious ceremonies with marriage licenses issued by the state. There is a noble purpose spelled out by the U.S. Supreme Court in a 1971 case from Connecticut that forbids a state from charging a filing fee for divorces for poor people. The opinion for the court says, quote, marriage involves interests of basic importance in our society. It is not surprising then that states have seen fit to oversee many aspects of that institution. Without a prior judicial imprimatur, Individuals may freely enter into and rescind commercial contracts, for example, but we are unaware of any jurisdiction where private citizens may covenant for or dissolve marriages without state approval. We know of no instance where two consenting adults may divorce and mutually liberate themselves from the constraints of legal obligations that go with marriage, and more fundamentally, the prohibition against remarriage without invoking the state's judicial machinery. End of quote. But family law, as we know, goes well beyond dissolving untenable marriages. In many instances, there are financial arrangements that must be untangled and justice to be sought in the rearrangement of family finances. Family law involves the protection of children from custody and support, 
to intervention by the state to protect victims of abuse and neglect. The practice of family law thus actually involves a lot of different areas of the law, including such things as determining which state's laws apply, constitutional principles that apply, criminal law sometimes comes into the mix, legal ethics, taxation, just to name a few. Not to mention the lawyer's own role as counselor. Some marital dissolutions may be every bit as complicated as legal efforts to merge or dissolve business corporations, but family matters are not just legal, but emotional. In both family and business matters, we should appreciate the lawyer's role as counselor, which oftentimes involves managing the expectations of clients. And where do client expectations come from? Media, of course, especially movies, entertainment shows on TV, and most likely from friends, neighbors, relatives who have been through the dissolution and custody processes, and they are powerful sources of information and misinformation. These people do not lack for opinions. When I began the study of family law, did I know what to expect? I did not, but I was pleasantly surprised. When a client seeks out a lawyer for a family law matter, does the client know what to expect? Well, it's a little bit different. Let's just say they come to the lawyer with their own opinion. And the challenge many times is simply stated, but hard to accomplish. The clients are really, they are entitled to their own opinions, but not to their own facts, nor to their own law. In our modern society, family law is where many of the public encounter our legal system most profoundly. Their family lawyer must navigate the law and facts competently, help manage and meet the expectations of those involved, and try to achieve a result that satisfies clients and family members, as well as the public's need for protection of the vulnerable. These are many tough cases, many tough decisions for all involved, and not everyone in these cases leaves the courthouse happy. Legalese. Let me, let me make sure I understand some, some terms. Is there a difference between spousal support, maintenance, and alimony? We do not have alimony in Missouri. Okay. We have either maintenance or spousal support, and those two terms are used interchangeably. We do have alimony in Missouri because people refer to it as alimony all the time. But you'll not see the words alimony used in any case law or statutes in Missouri. It's either called spousal support or spousal maintenance. And who, who sets the level of that? Uh, either the parties by agreement or the judge. But there is a statute that sets out the test that the, a judge must apply to determine whether someone is eligible for spousal support or maintenance. And does that end if, if somebody remarries? It does. By statute, it ends death of either party, the payer or the recipient, and, uh, or upon remarriage. Does the recipient have any claim to an estate? after a payer dies. No, it's, it's death of either party. Okay. Death of the receiving spouse or death of the paying spouse. And that's why it's important that it says that. Even if you're alive but the paying spouse is deceased, you don't... I mean, you would have a claim for an arrearage, but not a claim for future spousal support. And what claims are there on pensions? Well, it depends on what you mean. Pension is, with the exception of a pension that is in lieu of Social Security, such as a teacher pension. Social Security is not marital property. Teacher retirement, which is in lieu of Social Security, is, 
is not marital property. The tier of a railroad pension that's in Louis Social Security is not marital property. But otherwise, pensions are marital property and they're divisible as marital property. So when you ask about pensions, they're divisible as marital property. And also, uh, claims can be made against pensions for the payment of spousal support and child support. So 401ks, IRAs? Are marital property. Marital property. Mm -hmm. I explain to clients, because that just seems bizarre to clients, I try to explain to clients to see if they can understand that a 401k or, or an IRA is just a form of a savings account that's been given a favorable tax treatment. So if you took that $200 a month and put it in a bank account, it would, you would understand that that would be marital property. Well, instead you can put it in an IRA, and that's just a form of a savings account, but it's a savings account that has special tax treatment. So, you know, stop looking at it like it's something sacred. It's, it's just really a savings account. <laughs> and the recipient of someone, the receiving party, are they liable for any taxes, income taxes or the like? That's a great question, I tell you what. <laughs> um, the Internal Revenue Code specifically exempts distributions of property associated with a divorce from income taxation. So we have clients all the time that are very worried. They say, well, who's going to pay the taxes on this property that's distributed? There are not going to be taxes associated with property, income taxes associated with property that's distributed through divorce. That doesn't mean there'll never be taxes associated. For example, if we split a 401k in half and one of the parties decides they're going to take a cash withdrawal from that 401k, well, they'll pay the same penalty and the same taxes for an early withdrawal as anyone would pay from a 401k. But that's not because they got half of the 401k. And the reason there aren't, isn't going to be income taxes because as far as the law is concerned, that really was already their property. In the eyes of the law, the marital estate is both of the parties' marital estate. It really doesn't matter if it's in Bob's name or if it's in Jane's name. It really was either of their property already. So just moving it from Bob to Jane or Jane to Bob isn't a taxable event. So there's no reason to pay any tax on it. So that's the easy explanation of it. So that's why it's, there's no income tax. I mean, it was your property already. We're just moving it from one name to another name. But if it would be an event that would otherwise be taxable, then it's going to be taxable if you cash it out or something. Who tracks and enforces the distribution of either marital support or child support? Most people in Missouri, in fact, the statute provides that it's supposed to be done this way, and so it's done this way in almost every case. Our statutes say that support is to be paid through the Family Support Center. And people say all the time, I don't understand my, my, why my wages are being garnished. They're not being garnished, even though your, your payroll people may call it a garnishment, but it's a wage withholding, and it doesn't have anything to do with an arrearage or being behind or whatever. It's done that way from day one, and that's because we have a statute that says that child support or spousal support is to be paid by wage withholding. 
you know, that's the way it's done. Uh, federal law provides for that now, and it's a way to keep track of spousal support and child support. It improves the payment of it, and so it's an electronic payment system. The employer takes it out of the wages, sends it most of the time electronically up to the big family support center out of Jefferson City, and then it's paid electronically to the recipient. I believe they get it on like a debit card. Oh, okay. Yeah, they don't even get money. And is there any way for child support to ever be terminated other than when the child becomes emancipated? As far as an obligation to pay child support? Well, if a child is in your custody, of course, you don't pay child support for your own child. So the only way, if somebody is ordered to pay child support, the only way that obligation to pay child support would end is it would abate if the child goes into your own custody. So if I had an obligation to pay child support for a child, if that child then goes into my own custody, then that obligation would terminate, or if the child emancipates. Parties cannot, well, I mean, they could have a modification where they could agree if there's, especially with a joint custody arrangement, we're seeing a lot of parties with joint custody arrangements where parties are agreeing that there will be no actual support paid to the other. That's becoming very common, and instead there's an arrangement with sharing expenses. So, I mean, that's a way, you know, through a modification. Mm -hmm. When you're saying, how else could child support terminate if the parties agree to a modification? then that, that would be a way. And we are seeing a lot of joint custody arrangements where neither party is paying support and instead they're sharing expenses, becoming much more common. Are, are payments for child support or spousal support tax deductible? The old payments for spousal support, were, if you're paying spousal support under an old order, those are tax deductible to the person who's paying and taxable to the person who's receiving them. But that law changed under the two-year-old tax code. There was a, a one-year delay to that change, but for orders that are have now been in effect since, I believe it was January 1, 2019, those payments are no longer deductible and no longer taxable to the recipient. That was a controversial issue with that tax law change because there were a lot of people who were getting a huge deduction uh, for their payment and spousal support. People who were paying big spousal support bills and getting a big deduction. And if you have an old order, they didn't take that away. So you continue to get that. They were grandfathered in. But new orders now, you do not get that. And there are people who were clamoring to get their divorces wrapped up by December 31. So. I remember reading articles and headlines yeah. about that and why now is the time to divorce yes. if you are going to divorce. It seemed yes. Yes. strange that yes. it would two be for tax ago. purposes. Yes. Two years ago, people were running down to the courthouse, at, you know, this <laughs> close of business on December 31 to get that tax deduction in, yes. So in a case like this, which party keeps the... Uh, the dependency tax deduction. Well, that's an issue that's changed as well. Um, th that's something that received absolutely no headlines when the tax law changed, but there's a dependency still for children, but no exemption. This exemption for children is gone, and many people do not realize that. There's only a tax exemption now for taxpayers. So, you know, we have $12,000 per taxpayer, 
but there is no exemption anymore for children. You still have dependency, but no exemption. So we've gotten rid of that fight for the exemption, and the dependency is limited to a tax credit. We used to have a $1,000 credit per child, and that increased to a $2,000 credit. So the dependency now gave you an additional $1,000 credit. And that, and that $2,000 credit phases out at age 16 to a $500 credit. Does Missouri have something called a legal separation different than a divorce? Or, it, or it, like when people say I'm legally separated, is that really a real thing? When people say they're legally separated, it's typically not a real thing. People think that if they're not living together and they filed for divorce, they think they're legally separated, which is not true. Missouri has a legal separation, but to be legally separated in Missouri, you go through the exact same process as a divorce, except at the end you're not divorced. So it's kind of like a <laughs> if you aren't quite sure, you could do a legal separation, but then not have the same status of being divorced? Yeah. Okay. Well, it, it was used many years ago for people who maybe for religious purposes or other purposes did not want to be divorced. They wanted to have their assets and debts divided and even make arrangements for children and support and whatever, but did not want to be divorced. And so they, again, they went through the exact same process, but the judgment that they got at the end was a judgment of legal separation, not a judgment of divorce, which 90 days afterwards could convert into a judgment of divorce. I've probably only done 35 years I've been doing domestic practice. I think I, I can count on two hands the number of legal separations I've done. There was also there was a period of time where people would do legal separations because you could stay on a spouse's health insurance if you were legally separated and not divorced. So people would do that. But most health insurance carriers have closed that loophole and their health insurance policies now provide that you lose your dependency coverage if you're either divorced or legally separated. So there was a little bit of a window where we were seeing seeing those happening. It was a brief window. What's the difference between dissolution and divorce? Well, we don't have divorce in Missouri. It's dissolution. <laughs> and so you'll hear me every once in a while and slip out and call it a dissolution because that's what they are in Missouri. And that's the case in many states. We don't divorce people. We dissolve marriages. So we don't have divorces in Missouri. We dissolve people's marriages. So our judgments are dissolution of marriage judgments. But, you know, I mean, nobody, and when you say something, I'm going through a dissolution, they would have no idea what that is. <laughs> this is similar to the alimony phrase, yes. even though it's not alimony in it's, Missouri. It's maintenance. Yeah. yeah, well, maintenance sounds like something you do to your lawn. <laughs> are, are people required before they dissolve their marriage to go through any kind of a, a dispute resolution program? Most jurisdictions now have alternative dispute resolution programs and we find them very effective. We have one in our circuit, our 32nd circuit. I have participated in the mediator training and I am a mediator through the, our mediator training that we have a statute that requires you to go through the 40 hours of training and so I'm a big advocate 
of it, and we find that very successful in both employment cases, that, which I, that's an area of my practice, and of domestic cases. It's hard to track the statistics, but I hear numbers as high as 80% thrown out that close to 80% of the cases that go to dispute resolution, which is mediation, resolve themselves either at the mediation or the lawyers will tell you down the line, probably as a result of what happened at the mediation. The lawyers may have to fine tune it subsequently, but we have found mediation to be a great tool in getting the parties together and talking about the issues which it may sound crazy, you say, well, you know, why don't they just, you know, work it out in the beginning or whatever. But you have a good cooling off period after the parties separate and an exchange of information that the lawyers get. And then they, then the parties go to mediation armed with good information and have gone through that period where they're ready to resolve the matter. Mediation, I think, is very valuable. Are there any other trends beyond alternative dispute resolution or mediation that you've seen that have benefited those who are going through family law instances, which oftentimes sound like they could be very distressful or emotional times? I think a significant trend that I hope down the line is going to be helpful is the move towards more shared custody. I do hope that that's going to decrease some of the animosity as the parties appreciate in cases in which we're dealing with children that the ultimate outcome is going to be that the courts are likely going to rule that custody is going to be either shared or very closely shared. So spending a lot of energy on this level of animosity towards a result that's not going to likely be a realistic result is is not a good investment of time and energy and and money. Not that there aren't some cases where it's appropriate to spend that time and money and energy, uh, but it's not going to be appropriate in a lot of cases. And uh, I think that that's really going to be a positive thing, uh, I think, for a lot of my clients and for the children who are involved in the case. Is there any advice that you give to clients who meet with you who are either seeking a divorce or are facing custody battles or issues or maintenance or support issues? Is there any sort of staple piece of advice that you give them all? You know, one of the things that I recommend, I mean, this is, this is one standard thing that I recommend to my, my clients is as difficult as these matters are uh, to all of my clients, they're, that they're going to need to really work very closely and carefully with me. These are highly emotional matters, but this may sound like a crazy piece of advice, but they're also highly technical business type of matters, and it's very difficult for clients who are in a highly emotional state to also understand that in order to effectively and efficiently deal with their matter, they're going to have to get that kind of focused uh, hat on and so I, I try to talk to them about doing that and we're going to need very good information and very specific information and they're going to need to work with my office but I, I find that sometimes when I do that that's therapeutic for them too it gives them jobs to do and tasks to do and things to work on and I, I just find some 
that they're working with me on it. I find that for a lot of my clients to be therapeutic. Together, we're, we're going to be on this journey towards resolution of an important problem. Excellent. We've been talking uh, family law with Diane Howard of the Limbaugh Law Firm in Cape Girardeau today. Diane, thanks for your insights. We appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to be here and see if I can maybe help some of the listeners of this podcast learn a little bit more about something I've been doing for a long time and I really love doing. Well, thank you for being here. There are some resources you might want to check whether you're involved in family issues or whether you have other legal questions. Absolutely, Bob. We have those resources available at MissouriLawyersHealth.org. Again, that's MissouriLawyersHealth.org. You can find an array of information on various legal topics at that website to help you better understand the law, including our family law resource guide. Before we go, we've learned a lot about our court system today. It's important to know where these rights and liberties come from. Here to share more is our Citizenship Education Director, Tony Simons. Let's be clear. Nowhere in the Constitution will you find a specific reference to a right to marry, a right to start a family, or a right to raise children. What you will find, though, is the 14th Amendment, which says, no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The idea of liberty has been interpreted by the United States Supreme Court to encompass the right to marry, the right to start a family, and the right to raise children. One of the first such cases came in the early 20th century. The Nebraska legislature enacted a law prohibiting the teaching of any language other than English in any school prior to the eighth grade. A private school teacher was prosecuted for teaching German to 10-year-old students. In the 1923 case of Meyer versus Nebraska, the Supreme Court reversed the conviction of the teacher and ruled the law to be unconstitutional. Justice McReynolds, writing for the court, stated, while this court has not attempted to define with exactness the liberty thus guaranteed, the term has received much consideration and some of the included things have been definitely stated. McReynolds continued, without doubt, it denotes not merely freedom from bodily restraint, but also the right of the individual to acquire useful knowledge, to marry, establish a home, and bring up children. McReynolds indicated that the Constitution protects the rights of parents to decide if their children will learn German, not state legislatures. In doing so, the court provided constitutional protection for the ability of parents to make certain decisions about the education and well-being of their children. Laws that take these decisions out of the hands of parents and place them within the purview of government would be regarded as constitutionally questionable. The court would reaffirm these ideas five years later in 1928 when Oregon enacted a law requiring parents to send their children to public school. This law was challenged by organizations operating private schools and the Supreme Court ruled the legislation unconstitutional. Once again, the Supreme Court rejected the state taking decisions about children out of the hands of parents 
strengthening the constitutional commitment to parental rights. More recently, paternal grandparents in the state of Washington petitioned the courts for increased visitation with their grandchildren. In this case, grandparents were spending much less time with their grandchildren when their son's relationship with the mother of the children ended. They spent even less time with the grandchildren after their son died and the mother remarried. The court in Washington granted expanded visitation for the grandparents despite the mother's opposition. This case was appealed to the United States Supreme Court. In the 2000 decision of Troxel versus Granville, the Supreme Court ruled against the grandparents and in favor of the mother. Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, writing for the court, noted the significance of the mother's interest in this situation. She wrote, the liberty interest at issue in this case, the interest of parents in the care, custody, and control of their children is perhaps the oldest of the fundamental liberty interests recognized by this court. Justice O'Connor then criticized the decision of the Washington court, writing, the problem here is not that the Washington Superior Court intervened, but that when it did so, it gave no special weight at all to Granville's determination of her daughter's best interests. Justice O'Connor concluded, as we have explained, the due process clause does not permit a state to infringe on the fundamental right of parents to make a child rearing decision simply because a state judge believes a better decision could be made. This case gave rise to surprising alignments of the members of the court. Despite the six to three decision, almost every member of the court acknowledged the preeminence assigned by the constitution to parents as they make decisions regarding the care, custody and control of their children. We've just discussed significant Supreme Court precedent for the idea that the Constitution requires great deference to parental rights. However, I'm going to conclude with a cautionary caveat. In our system, no right is absolute. The deference we have identified today is contingent upon fit parents making informed choices. Our system is built upon checks and balances, and there are always limitations on even the most treasured right. While we have emphasized the due process clause today, the Constitution also includes the 10th Amendment, empowering the state to take action to protect the health, safety, and well-being of its citizens. This responsibility is especially compelling when it comes to the welfare of our children. The Supreme Court has recognized that the state possesses a compelling interest in acting in the best interest of the child, one that may transcend the rights of the parent. Ours is a system that yields very few easy answers. It is frustrating to some people that we do not always side with the parent or always uphold the action of the state. However, if we take a step back this can be viewed as the genius of the system in which constant tension between competing interests produces the best possible result with the greatest frequency. Nothing further, Your Honor. 
The more you know about the laws that impact our daily lives, the better decisions you'll be able to make about your life, your family, and your finances. I'm Farah Fight. And I'm Bob Pretty. Join us for another episode of the Missouri Bars podcast, Is It Legal 2? A regular look at our legal system and you.